Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Silver Club podcast. It's U.S. Open week at Wingfoot, the 120th United States Open, as a matter of fact. And we are in for a great treat this week at Wingfoot Golf Club. We've had many great guests on our podcast so far this year, but one of them particularly sticks out, Mr. Neil Regan, who is the club historian at Venerable Wingfoot Golf Club. He provided us with all sorts of great ideas and thoughts that have revolved around the great venue in Mamaroneck, New York, Westchester County, the iconic Winged Foot Golf Club, home of two amazing golf courses. They're going to be playing the West Golf Course this week for the championship. However, their East Course is a very venerable test itself. Now, Colin and I recently sat down with Neil Regan, and we're going to get to that podcast and replay that in just a moment. However, I wanted to just quickly tell you about the Silver Club Golfing Society, and we've kicked off our event season a few weeks ago. We were in Chicago. We played at the Flossmoor Golf Club on the south side of Chicago, just down the street from Olympia Fields the same week that they were playing the BMW Championship there. It was a tremendous amount of fun. Andrew Ganey took home our gross title that week in Chicago. Flossmoor is just an old school, great golf course. And we can't thank all of our players enough for making the trip to Chicago. I just got back from the Inverness Club. We had a wonderful 10-on-10 team match against the Inverness Club members. Spectacular time. Inverness is fantastic. The restoration work that Andrew Green has done on that property, simply astounding. Superintendent John Zimmers really knows how to grow some grass. He came from Oakmont before he got to Inverness, so the golf course was in pristine condition as well. And we had a tremendous time. We can't thank our hosts at the Inverness Club enough. It was just a fantastic few days there playing our team match. We did squeak out a victory 8-7, to which was very fun and just had a, a lot of fun matches, a lot of fun camaraderie, and that's what the game is all about. If you want to know more about the camaraderie that the Silver Club Golfing Society shares each and every event, please hop on our website at silverclubgs.com. Or check us out on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook as well as LinkedIn too. We just have a tremendous time traveling around the country, going to some fantastic venues. We will be on our way to Trinity Forest Golf Club in a few weeks for our Dallas One Day event. Then we're going to have an event at the Old Town Club, a great Perry Maxwell in Winston-Salem, home of Wake Forest Golf. And then that same week, we're going to call it the Perry Maxwell Week. We're going to make the trip out to Prairie Dunes in Hutchinson, Kansas, and play that fantastic track as well. And we look forward to seeing all of our participants there. You too can take part in our one-day events. Again, just hop on our website, silverclubgs.com, and get involved. Come out to the events. I'd love to meet you. I am at every event 
And we just have a ton of fun playing some of the most architecturally significant courses all around the country. If you're a single-digit handicap and you want to hit shots that matter, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is definitely something you need to check out. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the sponsors of our Silver Club Golfing Society, the Dunhill brand, Torch Eyewear, the Winston Collection, Turtleson, and the Leith Silver Company, sponsor of our Silver Club Championship, November 16th to 18th at Pine Needles and Mid Pines in the heart of North Carolina. We can't thank our sponsors enough for all that they have done. And you can check out their website on our website at silverclubgs.com. Just hop in that drop-down menu in the top left and you'll find everything you need to know about our sponsors. All right, let's get to this great podcast with Neil Regan right now as he gives you such great insight to the 120th venue for the U.S. Open, the Wingfoot Golf Club in Mamaroneck, New York. Enjoy this podcast. We're bringing you a man who epitomizes this deep connection to the entire game, and more specifically, the Winged Foot Golf Club in Mamaroneck, New York, host of the 2020 U.S. Open just north of New York City. And you know you found a great club when it has its very own club historian. So we'd like to welcome Winged Foot's club historian, Neil Regan, to the Silver Club Podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, Colin. How are you guys? Hey, Neil. Nice to have you, man. This Great is, to see you again. This is a very special podcast because Colin, our resident historian, is also joining here today in the fun in the Q&A we have right here on your doorstep. So I'm just going to jump right into it, Neil. A friend of yours on Golf Club Atlas wrote, those who play with Neil see something almost childlike in his play. And it's a serious comment because he does not play for score nor glory. He plays for fun. He creates, he invents he discovers. Where did this love and this childlike play come about? Well, I think the uh, fun of the game is the glory of the game. So maybe I do play for glory. Uh, I don't know. I just love the way the ball bounces. I love the way it moves through the air. I, You know, the Scots have a, a saying, um, if there's no wind, there's no golf. And I think you could add to that. If there's no bounce, there's no golf either. And we played one time at my former club where I was a pro at, Paramount Country Club, a really fun Tillinghast design just on the other side of the Hudson River from Winged Foot. And you you have these things on every hole, and, and Paramount had these has these great greens that you have you play these challenge putts. Uh, where where did that come from? You know, at Winged Foot, we discovered that you can um putt in several different ways to get to the hole. Some putts go in and some putts go close. And we discovered that very often um, the putt that comes close is a 45 or 90 degree different angle than the putt that actually goes in. And it became so much fun to realize that from almost anywhere on the green, you can hit a putt that breaks huge amounts, but tracks all the way to the hole. And that's part of the design. You know, the, all, all the slopes are big slopes that lead to the hole. So, yeah, I mean, isn't that what we're unfortunately the, the secret ingredient of all the great old courses is that they were anticipated to roll at probably seven or eight, some sort of normal pace. And then 
you get the combination of the grade, the ancient grade with the modern speed. And now you get this kind of to the limit sort of edge of reason kind of standard for greens at Wingfoot. Yes, you do. But, and, and many courses, as you know, better than me have responded to that by softening their contours to, uh, to react better with the faster, shorter grass, faster putts. But at Wingfoot in particular and numerous other places, I think the faster green speeds actually improve the great contours. If they were designed uh, properly, the great contours, uh, even as, as much as 5%, 6% that we still have at Wingfoot, you can find your way to the hole. It's just that it's not going to be a one-foot break. It might be a 12-foot break. Very cool. Well, you know, so um, I was telling Steve before the call that you are second generation club historian at, at, at Wingfoot, at least second generation. I got to meet you when you were sort of uh, Doug, Doug Smith's protege back in 2004 in the amateur year. And um, take us through sort of your, your history at the club, um, you know, background in golf, but, you know, sort of how, um, how you sort of anointed yourself the uh, the protege to, to Doug Smith? I think I didn't anoint myself. I got roped in by the oldest member, and I enjoyed the conversation and fell in love with the history of the golf course. Doug Smith, as you remember, was a um, a great man, and he dedicated the last twenty five years of his life to what he called the, the small histories that keep us free. He was a war hero who had fought five years in the war. Uh, ending up with all sorts of medals, leading infantry at the Battle of the Bulge, had seen everything. His unit broke the Waffen SS, which was the toughest SS unit. And when he came back to America, he knew what freedom was all about. And he dedicated the last years of his life to golf. And you ask, how can a man who saw what he saw, as his generation saw, spend so much time on the intricacies of uh, Trivial golf, you might say. And that's what he would say. The small histories keep us free. You don't fight for freedom. You fight for free people. And free people do things that they do, one of which is play golf. Well, tell us. So give us give us some of the sort of fun history of the club and from bring us all the way back to the connection with the um, with the athletic club and 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 from there. Uh, you know, we started at um, the golf boom after Francis. We met. Golf in America took off. Uh, all the NYAC, New York Athletic Club members, uh, many of them fell in love with golf. NYAC was any sport in the world, any interest group in the club would form a sub club to play that sport. So the NYAC members joined, formed a golf club that's still in existence called the Nyackers, and they basically played all over the Met area, everywhere they could. And by about 1920, they said, we need our own course. And so they formed a group to build a course for the NYAC. When the course came to be built by 1923, the NYAC declined to purchase the club. So the club was never affiliated with the NYAC, but uh, all the original members were NYAC members. And what's interesting about the pedigree of the original members is this, what I just said, they all had played virtually every course in the Met area, which had the finest golf courses in America at the time, perhaps. So virtually every member of Wingfoot at the beginning was like an outpost club member. He had played all the golf courses around and he knew what he was looking for. 
So that leads to their request. One of my favorite sort of lines is, is their sort of uh, list, their, their short uh, demand to Tillinghast, which was? Oh, their, their demand to Tillinghast was give us a man's sized course. And it. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And, and uh, we've recently found some more uh, in the, in the board meeting notes. Uh, basically they would just ask uh, telling us what, what he thought of the golf course. And he said for, this is not a, this is almost a correct quote. I don't have it in front of me. Um, in my opinion, this is the finest courses I've ever laid out. So we're, kind of proud of that in pretty good well, pretty pretty good company for sure you know think think about let's put wingfoot really into context of a few of some of the other great 36 hole facilities i mean wingfoot is not just it's not just oakmont it doesn't have just 18 holes you have you have 36 amazing golf holes the west which will host the u.s open and then the east which has also hosted many championships i actually played the 100th met open there uh, a few sure years is. back, which was which was very exciting. So two venerable golf courses. Uh, what other? I mean, you think of the other thirty-six hole facilities in the country that are like it. There's not too many. You know, of all the great thirty-six hole collections in the world, I think it's the only one that good. That's a private club. Bandon, of course, competes. Uh, Bally Bunyan competes, but it's a uh, semi-private, if you know, as you know. Baltusrol is simply wonderful. Um, Pinehurst Complex is wonderful. Streamsong is wonderful. But there's no place like Wingfoot for 36 holes of just great private club golf that's so open to so many guests. You know, I don't want to stress that we're private. We are private, but no great golf course has is busier, I would say. I love – everyone, of course, loves – the sort of the nuance and the difference between the West and the East is West is clearly the championship one, but the East has all these moments that you don't, you don't otherwise get on the, on the West and you have almost a little more quirk and variety. Tell me, tell, tell our listeners what's so special about the East. You know, Tillinghast did had a very, a relatively flat piece of land and it took a magnificent vision to realize a natural routing on that land. If you take a flat piece of land, most architects are going to do a good job, but they're going to kind of do it on paper and put it on the land. And somehow or other, he found the topography, the best topography on the land. And it happens, the East Course has more of that than the West. Uh, it has more slopes. It has a, a couple of natural features, a cave, uh, a pond. It's got a um, just a little bit more rolling terrain. Can you um can you dispel this myth about the 1929 Open and the East Course being the uh, original choice? Where did that where did that come from? I'm not 100% sure it was written in one of the newspaper articles many years ago. Doug Smith refuted it, proved it, refuted it again and again and again. We thought we had it uh defeated and then uh then Jenkins God bless him repeated it again for 06 and it's now back out there again. But it was never true. <laughs> so, so for our listeners, um, there's this kind of uh, old wives' tale that the East was identified for the 29 Open, and there was there had been heavy rains, and the course they actually, as a backup, somehow moved to the West. It's almost like a tale that out that Wingfoot members came up themselves to sort of you know create a mythology of their of the two courses that you know. The, the one was sort of ready in backup, and that's now the legendary course. 
Yeah, I could believe that. I'm not sure how the rumor started. And, and you know, newspaper writers are looking for copies. So maybe he just, some guy made it up. Who knows? <laughs> Always fun of those stories that they all go around. Let's, let's get into the restoration a little bit. Because both, both golf courses, all 36 holes have been restored now. Get us into why you chose Gil Hance. Obviously, he's a, he's a fantastic course designer, restorer, uh, recently, I mean, in the last several years, did some work not too far down the road at, at Tillinghast, uh, designed Quaker Ridge as well. Talk a little bit about, uh, the whole restoration project and why it had to happen. Uh, what had happened over the years, uh, the whole golf world um, had a historical memory loss. Uh, Post-World War II, I doubt many people in America could name an architect. Uh, maybe some could name Donald Ross. All the club members, in my opinion, this is one of the driving forces coming back from World War II and the Depression. Green, green, green is good. Uh Golf clubs planted trees all over. You know what happened in Oakmont in the 50s. Uh, the USG actually pushed it. Uh, they sent around landscape architects to golf clubs to recommend tree plantings. I have the tree planting plan we have from 1980, and it was designed by a woman who looked at every golf site, every green site, as if it was the backyard of a uh, you know, Greenwich estate. Every open place where where, where the golf exists, as Bill Corr would say, was filled in with a, um, a collection of uh, five hardwoods, four uh, native evergreens, and, and, a, and flowering shrubs. And it was beautiful if you wanted that in your backyard, but it took away <laughs> all the golf, all the golf. Golf is about recovery options around the greens, especially at Wingfoot. And we discovered a bunch of our members realized what was going on. And in the 1990s, along with many other people in the golf business, realized that a great mistake had been made with massive tree plantings for agronomic reasons, but also for design reasons. Uh, taking away the golf. The golf isn't the fairway and the green. It's the whole green site. It's the recovery shots around the green. And when you plant trees where you should be hitting a flop shot, you've committed a crime <laughs> <laughs> i remember watching that 1997 pga championship the famous rainbow with uh, davis love there and yeah they, they, everything was just so tree-lined and so enclosed and yeah when you have those those trees everywhere you can't get to the greens right you hit it in the trees and you have to chip out and you have to your recovery options like you said aren't aren't very aren't very many well i'll tell you a quick story um our board members and our members in general are very, very smart. And even though they weren't aware of architecture per se, they were aware of it in their soul because they're golfers. When we went out with Gil Hans on his very first walk around for the golf course, we had a tree that had been planted in 1959 over a bunker, a pine tree on 11 West. And it was in your face. You could actually get almost poked with pine needles as you were standing over your ball. Totally, totally wrong. And I had come down in a windstorm that spring, and we were out there, and the, and the tree was still lying on top of the bunker like a broken matchstick. And uh, Gil was informed right there that, don't worry, we already have a tree coming. We're going to have it replaced before the course opens on St. Patrick's Day. And this is what Gil is so good at. He led them through a Socratic question and answer session 
Tell me what it was like when the tree was there. What were your options? And the answer was, uh, the tree was in your face. So what did you do? You punched out sideways. Then what? Well, you hit a wedge to the green. Then what? Uh, you had a, a four or a five. What happens now with the tree gone? Well, you have an option to go for the green. Tell me about the green. Well, it's got this big elephant buried in it. It's incredibly steep, and there's a bunker in front. So what do you do? You take an extra club to make sure you get over the bunker. What happens? You might be on the back of the green over the back. Then what? Then you have to hit a terrific shot to get up and down. But you might get your birdie if you actually hit the green. So what are the results? Well, you might get a birdie. You might get a four. You might get a five. You might get a six. And then they go, what's the other option? You punch out, you hit it on the green. So which story are you telling in the grill room afterwards? How you got up and down with a great recovery shot or how you punched out from under the tree from the ferry? <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. That's good stuff. And so they, they changed their mind right there. And we sent out a letter to the members that day, I think, saying we, we're reconsidering that tree. Uh, we'll try it without a tree for a year. Then we'll reevaluate. The tree, of course, has never been back. And that was the sort of process Gil was able to educate the members with by letting them see, not by telling them what the answer was, by letting them figure it out for themselves. Us, I should say us. So, um, you know, there's always, tell us about the sort of reputation, you know, there's a reputation of the club having sort of a, you know, a, a significant number of single digit handicaps. I mean, I guess it, it's sort of, um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, a difficult, famous course. That's a challenge. You don't sort of want to go through the membership process to get, uh, embarrassed. Tell, tell us about the culture of the club and the, and the membership. And is that sort of true about the kind of the, the sort of depth of, uh, strong players? Well, as you know, yes, it is. Uh, one of your top players, I think, uh, at Yale is a Wingfoot member. And uh, as good as he is, he still will struggle to win the club championship. He might win it one day. Uh, we've always had great players. Uh, Herbert Warren Wynn said in the 30s, it was often said that um, Wingfoot, Wingfoot members could beat the uh, British Irish Walker Cup team. And it was probably true. You know, we had uh, George Voigt, for example, who was the number one amateur in the world. Um, you know, we had Dick Chapman growing up in the 30s, won the 40 amateur, 48 uh, British amateur. Uh, Dick Mayer became a pro leading tour player. Claude Harmon and Craig Wood has have always had a, a junior program. Tom Neoport continued it. So, yes, we've always had superb players. And I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote. This this is the sort of thing that happens to me, uh, happens at Wingfoot. Many years ago, I was uh, playing with a, a member who I didn't know. And I was a, a, a seven handicap at the time, and he said he was an eight. So we go out on the first hole on the east course, and I see him swing. I go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. <laughs> you know, what's going on here? And he's got one of these just perfect swings. So I get to know him. He's a friend now. Um, and we get to talking, and it's clearly he's he's not better than an eight, but he is way better than an eight. Um, so we're talking afterwards, and I said, you know, well, uh, how are you possibly an eight? He goes, you know, I used to be much better, but I haven't really touched the club before in two years. I've been so busy with work, and um, that's my handicap now. And it, it pretty much was. And then we got talking about great, great golf courses. Bethpage is one of my very favorite golf courses. I go out there a lot. And um, I mentioned Bethpage. He says, I grew up on Bethpage. As a matter of fact, I hold the course record. <laughs> I go, how'd that happen? He goes, well, I was the New York State Junior Amateur when I was 17. And the gamblers used to back me for thousands of dollars against these hustlers. 
And, you know, he was a plus two all his life. And then he gave up golf for work. And this is just like a casual guy you might meet at Wingfoot who, yes, he, you turn around and, and he's, a, he's a superb golfer. You mentioned but, um, you mentioned you, you uh, triggered a, a great U.S. Amateur uh, trivia question there. Um, Nineteen forty, last time the uh, U.S. Amateur uh, winner did so at his home course. It'll probably be a long time before that ever happens again. But that's a pretty cool. That's a pretty cool detail that I I think is probably appropriate for Wingfoot. Yes, and Dick Chapman. He grew up there. He was one of. Uh, Craig Woods Juniors. Um, he not only won the U.S. Amateur, he also won the British Amateur. But he was a perennial Walker Cup player, and also, I believe, still tied for most uh, times playing in the Masters as an amateur. I think Billy Joe Patton and he both played seventeen times or so. And Colin, he was also a uh, a, a mutual, a good friend with a mutual friend of ours, uh, Bob Huntley, used to play with him an awful lot. Very nice. Take us through the um, the majors in the sort of fifties and sixties, and 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 I definitely want to hear your thoughts about the massacre. Uh, well, the majors, the quick rundown: the U.S. Opens were 29, 59, 74, 84, 2006, and now this year, um, they were won by Jones, Casper, Hell Irwin. Uh, uh, Fuzzy Zeller and uh, Jeff Ogilvy. You know, they become the legendary stories in the golf world, both 59 Casper with his putting exhibition and 74 The Massacre were, um, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? You know who I mean? The, from San Francisco? Hale. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, well, Hale Irwin was the winner, was he not? But, uh, yeah, Hale Irwin won, but, you know, I'm spacing out on, on the name. Oh, of the, well, the year before, it was so that was a reaction to Johnny Miller, 63 at Oakmont the year before. Is that what happened? Was, yeah. was, yeah. was 74 <laughs> the height of the USGA's old format of just narrow fairways, thick, rough, and possible greens? Did, it, did, it, did that reach a breaking point that year? I think it reached a starting point <laughs> right there. That's what the the story is anyway. That the the players all tend to believe that no matter uh, what they say, it was Sandy Tatum who set up the course, and he was explicit. He said no, he did not set it up that way, uh, and he repeated that as late as two thousand and six. But the players tended to believe that it was a revenge for the sixty three at Oakmont by Johnny Miller. You know who can say? I I don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's always a compelling story that comes out. Obviously, in 2006, when Jeff Ogilvy kind of snuck in there and had a couple chip-ins and great up and down on the 72nd, and then Phil did his thing and hit it off the gallery tent and plugged it in the bunker and made double. Uh, Wingfoot just always seems to get that compelling champion, doesn't it? It seems to, and, and Jeff Ogilvy deserves all the credit. I think there were five guys – who could have parred in and each one would have won. And he was the only one who did. Um, and I think there were seven or eight guys who could have parred in the last seven holes in one, including uh, VJ. And I think it's uh, it's a mind game as much as a golf game at Wingfoot. You cannot make a mental mistake. And you know more about this, Steve, than almost anybody. You can hit the shots, but and you can hit the shots under pressure. But, but if you make the wrong choice, 
you're in trouble. So, um, Neil, when you, when, when I, when we were hanging out in 04, that was the amateur year you were, um, you were using sort of old black and white images of the, of the course from the 29. And, and what I loved is you were identifying all these kind of back left corners on 18 and all these little edge can edges that were, had become either fair, become fringe or rough. And you were in the beginning of that process of reclaiming it. And obviously um, it's gone through a full cycle. I remember how I can imagine how gratifying it's been for you in these last 20 years to see it. What are we going to see? What are we going to see from the sort of the width and the, and the dimensions of the greens that's going to be a little different from maybe 06? Well, we recovered the perimeters, but the perimeters never lost their original contours we can now once again put pins in areas that were either one foot from the edge or actually off the green as late as 2012. And um, we do use those pin positions. And what I was mentioning before about the, the speed of the grass, whereas Jack Nicholas putted off one west in 1974 because he was above the hole and kind of took a more or less direct line at the hole and failed to stop it that same putt now is about eight feet wider he can putt change his direction instead of going down the fall line he can putt way more sideways and have the contours of the green bring it back in across the fall line and break his downhill speed so an amazing factoid about the restoration is this the average slope of the greens is higher now than it was before the restoration. Wow. I agree directly. All those, all, those side, all those side contours, right, that kind of coming off the bunkers and or higher the high ground, interesting. Yeah, yes, and, and that's one of the things that Tillinghast was so good at. Um, those side slopes coming in don't just slope in. They were contoured with an intelligence, as I say, so that you can break your downhill speed. They tended to be coming off a bunker, not just sloping into the green, but actually sloping a little bit towards the upslope of the green. So as you came off a bunker, instead of just feeding downhill, you the the, the, slope, the contour of the green will actually kind of turn you almost in, in unnoticeably, but definitely, and break your speed. And we see that all over. I was putting on one west yesterday in a pin position that we had a pin, but we hardly ever used it because it had about four feet of space and it was too steep. And now that we have the wider recovery there, you actually come down the hill and you almost hit the collar before you come back into the green. And that wasn't possible. So people were rightly complaining, saying this green is too steep. And at so many great courses, that sort of reasoning has led to the answer of soften the contours, where at Wingfoot, by recovering our perimeters, you can change the direction of your putt, change the roll of the ball from down the fall line to across the fall line, and you can maintain these grass speeds that we have. I will not say the stimp speed because that's a terrible measurement, but we do cut the grass at the modern heights, the very short heights, and it is fun golf. It's not tricky golf. There's no such thing as an impossible putt at Wingfoot. Would would um would Billy Casper have laid up on the par three had the greens been in the in the original dimensions to have those features? Or is that something that you would still, a shrewd golfer may consider? Do you think you might have a player come potentially lay up, not lay up, but 
hit underneath the holes slash the apron short of the green intentionally in order to sort of preserve a three. I think absolutely uh, the USGA is expecting it. If there's any wind in your face, Steve, you may remember playing there. If you have a yeah, yep. a cold wind in your face and you're playing from anywhere from 220 to 250, in the Met Open, for example, those long hitters were struggling to reach into a 10-mile-an-hour cold wind in their face. So full three woods, even for the tour guys, it could be a full three woods. So, yes, there was plenty of fairway there. And that's one of the designs that Tillinghast had. Our par threes all have fairways. And, and if you think of that for a second, that's somewhat unusual. <laughs> yeah, you think about laying up. And nobody really thinks about laying up on a par three. But, you know, you might at 16 at Cypress Point. or But uh, certainly not one with, with not an ocean surrounding it or something. But uh, re- really interesting. You obviously have great golf courses. Let's talk about the lineage of the great golf professionals that you've had at Winged Foot starting with Claude Harmon and Tom Neoporti and most currently Mike Gilmore. Why was it so important to have these great players and great teachers at Wingfoot? Well, we wanted the best, and it actually started – Mike Brady was our pro from through the 20s and 30s, and he lost in the playoffs for the U.S. Open twice. He was one of America's first great players, grew up with Francis Wiemet, Tommy Kerrigan, Walter Hagen up in Boston area. Um, and Craig Wood, as you might remember, the, um, won the Masters U.S. Open the same year. He was one of the best players in the world. And then Claude Harmon was who he was. And Tom Neoport won while – was quit the tour to raise his family, became a club pro, and won while still a club pro. And then Mike Gilmore, you know, he's, he's not quite good enough to be on a tour, but he's that good enough that he could play with the tour guys uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And it, and you, well, you played with him, you know. He's like you, Steve. That you you actually did play on tour for a while, I believe, didn't you? Yeah, I I did, I did for sure. It's it's a heck of a slog, but you're right. Mike Gilmore, I played with him. Won them. He won the Met Open in the past, which is a uh, just. I mean, Byron Nelson has won the Met Open, and I mean, all great great players have done that. Mike Gilmore is uh, has always been a great ball striker, venerable player up in the Met section and nationally. Oh, one of the, the members love him so much because he's like a kid. He enjoys the golf. Tom Neoport enjoyed the golf. That's what we love. Every member at Wingfoot loves golf, and we want a pro who's very good but who loves the golf. Mike will be out there carrying his bag 36 holes a day if he can. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've played, with, played with Mike quite a bit. Um, give us your – before we get into and kind of close it out with talking about – the upcoming U.S. Open. Give us your top couple stories that you've, as the club historian there, there's got to be a, a few top nuggets that you love to tell to audiences who just revel in this stuff. Oh, well, there's a, a bunch. Um, we're hoping that some of them make it to the TV broadcast. There's little vignettes. Uh, one of my favorites that it's too long to tell right here is the story of Babe Ruth at the 1929 Open with Bobby Jones and um, playing 54 holes while he was supposedly too sick to play baseball two days before the Open and going AWOL basically uh, for the month of June while he was playing golf at Wingfoot and other places. Uh, and there he is with Bobby Jones on the tee on the second round on Friday, smoking a cigar while Jones is swinging. 
it's it's just a great picture and a great story. <laughs> and we're hoping that it will make its way to TV because it takes a little longer to tell than what I've just said. Uh, one of my other favorite stories is Mickey Mantle. We're all New Yorkers here, so Mickey Mantle is still number one. Um, and he, there's a fantastic story of him just before the 59 open hitting the ball at a distance that uh, they still can't hit today. And that's the story we hope will make it onto the TV broadcast too. Um, you know, picking out other stories, I just don't know. There's so many good ones. Um, give us the um, give us the origin of the Mulligan story. That's a good one. Oh well, Mulligan, that's a great story, and there's a backstory to that too, which most of your listeners will never have heard. Um, David Mulligan was a hotel guy. He came to Wingfoot in 1928, I think, from Canada. Um, he ran, I think it was the Plaza Hotel. He and his buddy Frank Regan uh, ran the uh, Astoria. And they would uh, zip up after lunch to Wingfoot to play. And typically they'd be rushing in at the last second and the other guys were on the tee. And so he would um, rush on the tee and said, do you mind if I hit a second one? I just got out of the car. And so they remember started calling that a mulligan. So Doug Smith did all the research on this. And he proved it. It's true. You know, he's got the contemporary references and stuff. But he also discovered that uh, Mr. Mulligan had a family had two families that had never met and he introduced the grandchildren to each other. <laughs> so he had a mulligan with his first wife. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's a good story. It was, you know, has, has a happy ending. Um, so yes, uh, he really was a Wingfoot member and he really uh, did hit a second shot. And so the story is true. So, but it was, I always heard it was because he had the car and he did the driving that he kind of, kind of compelled his, his playing partners to give him a mulligan because because he was sort of the guy with the lift. Is that, that isn't necessarily true? I haven't heard that part. I've heard that he got out of the car, you know, and rushed on the tee. But uh, if you're saying that he took a bribe, you know, you, you get a ride for a free shot. I could believe that too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He's like, I covered the tolls. Like, give me an, I get an extra, get one extra off the first tee. I was going to say one other thing, Frank, uh, uh, what he did as a restaurant man, uh, we had some mysterious um, food uh, losses in our kitchen. And so the board, Nibs Nobles, said uh, uh, to Frank Regan and to uh, Dave Mulligan, why don't you guys investigate it? And the report from the board comes back. Sure enough, they knew where to look. Uh, they caught our chef loading his car with all our steaks that you boys thought you were going to be having this weekend. <laughs> So yeah, he he caught the guys uh, stealing the food. That's awesome. That's like out of a Scorsese movie. The you know chef at the yeah. country club bootlegging the <laughs> exactly yeah. bootlegging the steaks. Yeah. Uh, that's what great. About, I, we gotta we gotta ask you. You can you can decline, but you have any you know good stories from when the Donald was uh, a member of the club? I you know I've never played with him, um, and you know I can't. Every, anything else I might say would be just hearsay, so I don't see any good point to doing that at all. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, let's get into the U.S. Open uh, just a little bit. And obviously this this week would be what would be the U.S. Open uh, originally scheduled. It's going to be fall now, middle of September. So many, so many ways, really, a September U.S. Open is almost more appealing from a golf standpoint 
explain explain for those who haven't played golf in the in the northeast in the fall explain how a winged foot will look different in september than it might in june uh i was talking to steve rabador grounds crew chief yesterday uh about that and we were we were both looking forward very much the weather in the fall is the best weather in in the med area um the winds are slightly different. The course is fully mature. Not that it's nothing, nothing wrong with it in June. Um, the, the turf tends to be firm by the time you get to mid-September, late September. And Steve will have, will have had a full summer of prepping everything perfectly. His biggest concern will be a summer full of uh, divots and uh, ball marks. But he's being very proactive about that, as are the members. Uh, but the weather... You know, I, I've lived my life for the last 35 years to play golf uh, from September and October virtually every day in, in the Met area. I don't go to Ireland in October for that reason. And it's just the best golf in the world, in my opinion. The, the, POA, the POA putting surfaces are as pure as any putting surface in the world, especially uh, mid-September to the end of October. I've, I, I've always felt that way. And that's the, one of the first things I talked about with Steve when they, when they moved the open to, to September was this idea that like they're, it is going to take the USGA and Wingfoot some discipline to hold the turf back because that's, that is the fastest the turf gets all year without even trying normal clubs get sort of almost borderline too fast and you know, and we might very well have the open uh, knock on wood. It could be on four of the prettiest days of the year. No yeah. humidity, those gorgeous September days. I'm with you on that, on that sort of hidden fall secret season in the Northeast. And it's going to be, it, the course might never look better at any point, especially since there's no golf this spring coming out of the renovation, the care that's going into it. it it's, is it not possible that Wingfoot might look the best in its in its near hundred year history. I I would say there's a distinct possibility. June is still springtime and the full beauty has not emerged, and uh, the fairway greens, the whole design has never looked better in general since Gill's restoration. Uh, all the um, all the beautiful underlying uh, lines where fairways and greens merge were never presented as well before Gill's restoration and before Steve's work. And in September with everything in the height of, you know, in the flush of its bloom, I don't think it's ever going to look better. I, I really don't. Well, we, yeah, we can't wait. I mean, the, the golfing world cannot wait for that event uh it, it will it will look a little different uh, as far as the qualification processes to get there but uh, we we cannot wait to do that uh, hopefully i'll be on the broadcast with fox uh, you mentioned a second ago colin just to kind of wrap things up here uh almost 100 year history in fact 2021 was uh, will be your centennial next Next year, what sort of things do you have planned? Is there anything uh, big in the works? Yes, absolutely. Uh, big in two ways. One, 2021, we were founded. 2023, we were open for play. We discussed one to have the centennial. We wanted to have a good party. We wanted to have two centennials, 2021 and 2023. But because of the open, we decided that not to have it in 2021 because 
too big of a production. So we're already in the planning for 2023 as our centennial. Um, we're not quite sure what we're going to be doing, but it will be a year-long process. We'll have various events. Um, and two items as a historian that I'm particularly interested in is this. In the Cornerstone was a way to time capsule. Uh, included, among other things, quote-unquote, the architect's original plans for the golf course. Don't know exactly what that means, but I'm hoping and praying that that's telling has design. We know the box is in there. We sent a scope in. Uh, it's there. So we hope to, during the centennial, take it out and reveal whether it's dust or what. Who knows? And the other is the greatest tree in golf, as Dave Anderson called it, was the Great Elm Tree on 10 East. Came down in 1993. The whole course was designed around that tree, the clubhouse and the course. And it died of the Elm disease in 1993, finally. And sort of hoping that maybe, maybe we can get another one back there. It's been vacant for 30 years. It wasn't good agronomically for the grass, et cetera, but it was magnificent for every other reason. And we could put one back a little bit farther away from the green. And no golf course and no clubhouse tie in better than Wendehek's clubhouse and Tillinghouse golf course. They worked together to do that. And the starting point was that great entry. So yes, there's a, a hope in my mind anyway, that perhaps we will get that great elm put back in. Well, that's really exciting. Uh, we can't wait for all of this. And, you know, just thank you so much for your time, Neil and Colin. I, we've, we've had a, we've had a lot of fun. Time flies when you're having fun talking to somebody with so much knowledge in the game and about such a venerable club, just looking forward to watching this U S open this year and all the great players try to battle this firm fast great place so thank you neil for spending time with us today steve it's been a pleasure colin it's great to see you uh i hope to play golf with you soon i know you don't have a home golf course right now do you <laughs> it's it's a great place to go for a walk with my kids and ride bikes but uh i'm not worried i i do uh, i would i look nothing would make me happier than to get a game or at the very least even better i love to walk around the property with you in the in the run-up to the open and and, and get a feel for that we can certainly do uh, at least one of those and probably both. We'll, we'll make it happen. Well, we'll do that and we'll have a, a challenge putt contest on every single green. That would be uh, a lot of three putts, I think. <laughs> oh, oh, one last thing I want to say. Uh, Outpost Club, you guys are both involved, obviously, with the Outpost Club. I think mm -hmm. Ralph Kennedy should be your uh, mascot. So hey. he was, yeah, I, I, I told you about him, Steve, right? Yeah, explain, explain why. Wingfoot founding member, America's first golf nut, 1910, 1919, he met a man who claimed to have played more golf courses than anybody. He said, I can beat that. I've already had 176. He kept a science scorecard of every course he played from 1910 to 1957. Ended up with 3,600 golf courses, scorecards signed everywhere. National Geographic did a big article on him, the only golf article they've ever done. Uh, when he hit 3,000, he played at St. Andrews. There was a big turnout at the old course for him to play. He played all over the world. He was a traveling salesman. He loved his golf course and he had fantastic taste in 1955. He named his favorite courses, and they were uh, Cypress, Pine Valley, Wingfoot, Jasper. Uh, just great taste. And every Outpost member, Outpost Club member who wants to play at great courses should be. Think of 
Ralph Kennedy is his as your patron saint. He's also uh, on the cover of Saturday Evening Post twice. Uh, and so you would have a, a ready-made logo. Saturday Evening Post still sells his image on their cups and plates and things like that. Uh, so you'd have a, a mascot ready for, for the Outpost Club. <laughs> Beautiful. I see him wearing a, uh, an Argyle uh, Scottish cap in one of those Saturday Evening Posts. That's pretty. Is that the one with the B or with the pencil and the scorecard? Pencil and scorecard. Look closely. That's a winged foot pencil and a winged foot scorecard. Very nice. Uh, where's, his where's his collection of scorecards now? He gave it to the USGA. Uh, it's a mag one of the jewels of their collection. Uh, it's in a bunch of scrapbooks, and it's still valuable research. Jimmy Urbina, for example, used it recently for uh, to get an old scorecard for Blindbrook. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, 3,600 scorecards plus. Uh, if you like golf history, you just flip through that, sc that scrapbook and, and you'll just never come out. Very cool. Good suggestion. That's, that's unbelievable. We love, all of our listeners love out, love to get out there and play and, you know, our outpost club, silver club, everybody, we, uh, we like to get out there and play, but, and I can't wait to do it with you sometime soon. Neil, let's, uh, let's do that. Thanks so much for your time again today. Thank you very much, Steve. Colin, good to see you too. Thank you, Neil. God bless.